Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Ali Shulman, and I am one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited that you decided to spend a little bit of your weekend with us. We are pretty excited about this sermon series. It's only our second week, but it's not very often in planning sermon series that we feel like we just like chef's kiss, nailed the timing of this sermon series. Um, And got to tell you, if you aren't feeling that stress of April and May, even if you don't live in an academic calendar, a lot of things start to wind down now, and we're feeling it. We're feeling that lack of breathing room. We're feeling kind of that downhill, we're on a wagon, things are flying past us, there's times and commitments, and things are feeling really full. And it's not just in this particular time period. I think in general... This is a general characteristic of modern life, this feeling of being too fast, too full, too much. And it's because of a lot of reasons. There have been a lot of changes, mostly in how we consume and take in information over the last 20 or so years, really the last 10 years, that things have changed. The pace of our life has drastically increased. The way that we talk to one another, the way that we're expected to respond to the information that comes to us, It's no longer two or three days that we have to respond. It's now we have a red text message and you better respond unless they turned off their red thing. And then you're like, well, why did they turn that off? Maybe they did read it. Maybe they don't. Now we're left in this place where we are causing the pace of our life to increase. There is no breathing room left in our lives if we let them go. If we don't make intentional choices... Because of the way the world is, we are left in a state without much breathing room. And the way that we're defining breathing room in this series is the space between your load and your limits. Sometimes people of late have been calling that margin, right? Margin of error or margin like the size of the paper. But we're naming that breathing room, the space between what you can handle and what is actually happening in your life. And it's much more confusing in this day and age because we actually don't know what our limits are. It's actually kind of hard to determine what our limits are. Do you remember when, like, you used to, like, I mean, driving to Plano used to be a big deal? Do y'all remember that? Do you remember before we had, like, actual credit cards where literally you don't use cash anymore, so you actually don't really know how much money you have or how much money you've spent? We don't remember what it's like to have limits. And so this problem has become increasingly, exponentially worse over the last five to ten years. And this is the actual problem with it. It's not just that we have lack of breathing room. That's not the actual problem. The problem is what lack of breathing room does to us. The speed of our life is not leaving any space for our souls. The speed of our life is not leaving any space for our souls. I was reading something lately that was talking about progress and how much progress we've made. And it was commentating, it was thinking about how everyone who's made so much progress in the world, especially in technology and finance and what we've been thinking about these things, they didn't account for the humanity of humans. They didn't account for the limits that we humans have. And that is so true when you think about your own life and where those limits may or may not lie. 
And, and the problem with our souls not catching up with our bodies, that problem that our pace of life is too hard, the reason that I know that is true, and not just me but others, is that what happens when the pace of our life is so, so fast, we become sick, and quite frankly, we become really hard to be around. I don't know if you've been following lately all these articles and books about this newish term called burnout, right? There's been a lot in the news, especially in the millennial generation, which I'm a part of, but there's a lot of this definition and kind of discussing about burnout. And most people are talking about it in terms of work. They're talking about their workplaces. But let me read you this definition of burnout because I actually think this is true of living in the modern age, not just work. So listen. Burnout is the gradual process by which a person, in response to prolonged stress, detaches from work and other meaningful relationships. The result is lowered productivity, cynicism, confusion, a feeling of being drained, and having nothing more to give. This term became popularized a lot during the pandemic, right? When those limits were tested over and over and over again. But it's even more true now as we look at workplaces, as we look at what's happening across society, why are we so crabby? Why are we so irritable? Why are people resigning and thinking that's going to be the answer? What is happening to us? This is a quote from a guy named John Eldridge who writes a lot of books. And he wrote this years ago. So I think this is so interesting because he wrote it years ago. And how much more true is it today? So let's look at it. He says, we live in a crazy-making world. So much stimulation rushes in at us with such unrelenting fury. We are overstimulated most of the time. Things that nourish us, a lingering conversation, a leisurely stroll through the park, time to savor both making and then eating dinner, these are being lost at an alarming rate. And we simply don't have room for them. Honestly, I think most people live their daily lives along a spectrum from slightly rattled to completely fried as their normal state of being. God, how much is that true for us and our lives that our norm is rattled and then in really bad seasons we get fried. But our norm is anxiety, is depression, is stress overload, is hitting our limits. We are constantly living outside of our limits all the time. And this affects us in more ways than we know. It affects our body and our health. It affects our lots of other pieces in terms of our work and how we interact. But I think the place that it affects the most is what we're going to talk about today. Because the thing that this way of living, this pace of life affects the most, is our connection to each other, our relationships. And here's why. There is no shortcut to forming connection. There is no app. There's no life hack. There is no way to shorten the amount of time it takes to build a connection. You can't fix it. There is no replacement for the time invested in another person. There's none. And so it is not surprising that Americans today report the lowest levels 
of connection in the last 15 years. They did a study in not super long ago, 1990, and they asked how many Americans felt like they had no close friends. Surprisingly, that answer was actually pretty low. It was like 3% said they had zero close friends. They redid the study in 2021, and it was up to 13%. Which for us, we're like, oh, that's only 13%. But like, y'all, that's a big jump in a small amount of time. And they redid these studies on like how many Americans report like having social support or being able to talk to their friends. And those numbers are declining so much that it's starting to worry people in workplaces, psychologists, therapists, who are seeing more people than ever for people seeking out connection that they are missing among their friends. Our networks, we used to like have these networks that you would like talk to about like life problems that wasn't your therapist or your family. Those networks have shrunk and they're less diverse. That's not shocking to anyone. It shouldn't be shocking to you. The problem with societies we look in the world, and we complain about all the time, like, why are we so polarized? What? Look, it starts with your friends. It starts with your friends. And right now, we are living at a pace that doesn't allow us to make friends or keep them. And that's a problem. That's a problem for our health. That's a problem for our social support. That's a problem for us as people to try to figure out what matters in life. Because I'm going to share one more study with you. Stephen didn't share any, so I'm like overloading this, this week. Um, he, here's, here's why that's important. In 1997, when neuroscience was just like, they were starting to do some interesting research. They had these new machines called, you know, MRIs, and they were like trying to like figure out what people were doing. They went in, Washington University, it's a very famous study, and they said, we're gonna study the brain activity during various activities. And they had them do all these different activities. And it was interesting, they found out what they did during those activities. But the actual finding, the like most important finding from that study, was what happened to the brain during the downtime space in between those activities. And do you know what their brain was doing during those activities? It was thinking about their social life. And that might seem crazy to us, but man, if that isn't proof that we as human beings are designed to be in connection with each other. We are designed to be in relationship. And I can give you the theological reasons for that. I can explain that we are made in God's image. God's image is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That means that we are literally supposed to be dependent on one another. We are supposed to live in community. And what we are finding out now is that neuroscience kind of backs that up. We know that we're supposed to have connections. That we're meant to live that way. That actually relationships are what makes this matter. Nothing else matters besides the connections that you have. And those connections, they'll see you through anything. Through all the unpredictability, through all the changes, through all the transitions, what keeps you solid 
I mean, it's, it's not you. Let me tell you that. You will be weak and you will be broken in those transitions. And what's going to support you? Your friends. That's what matters. As far as I know, what I'm talking about right now is a pretty modern problem. Not even like modern, if modern is like talking about the 1700s. I'm, I'm talking about like last 15, 20 years. This space of how social media, but not only social media, like Zoom or messaging, how lack of phone calls, how we communicate with each other, all those technology changes we've seen, and plus the like imploding amount of choices, right, that we can choose to go to different schools or different neighborhoods, we can move quicker than we used to be. All those things are affecting how we relate to one another. But the idea that what we do, our busyness, our life, threatens our relationships, that part is not new. So we're gonna look at a passage it's a super famous story, because you've definitely heard it. Uh, it's in Luke. And so Luke is one of the Gospels of Jesus. It's a retelling of his life. And, and this is kind of in the middle of Luke, towards the beginning. Jesus is kind of traveling around. He's going to different places. It starts this very famous long portion in Luke where Jesus is on a journey. And this is towards the beginning. So let me read it to you. Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening. Ooh, I'm not going along with you guys. I'm sorry. I'm reading my own. Okay. Who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that he had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I hate this story. <laughs> I hate this story. Every time I hear this story, I think, there's so many thoughts, but here's some of my questions. One is that like Jesus and Luke prioritizes hospitality all through the gospel. Like it's like really good to serve people and open your home to people. That's why Jesus is on a journey. And you know what the passage is before this? The Good Samaritan, which is about serving people and being kind and opening your home, all these things. And so I get so frustrated with this passage because it's essentially what I see, pitting two women against each other who make different choices and it's super aggravating because you'll guess who I identify with this story, that I'm like, well, where would our world be if everyone was a Mary, right? <laughs> that I just can't handle this story. It bugs me. And so this week, when I tried to think about, oh, okay, I'll preach on this story, I had to dig a little deeper. I had to think about, okay, all these questions are fair. It's fair to ask, like, aren't Martha's actions a good thing? Like, why are we chastising her? And as I dug a little bit deeper, I started to understand maybe some pieces that I think this is trying to teach us today while still making space for those questions. I think the actual problem in this story, in terms of what, what Martha's doing, is not that she's serving. And we know that because there's countless examples before and after where serving and hospitality seem to be like the key Christian value to Luke. Opening your home 
making space for the guest who could be different than you and break barriers of kind of racial or ethnic barriers as well as socioeconomic, that was important to Luke and to Jesus. And so hospitality and serving is like a really high value. So that's not the actual problem. Martha serving, not a problem. The issue has to do with that word in verse 40. Let's go back. It's that word. But Martha was distracted by all of the preparations. That word, distracted, in Greek it's perispato, but it has this connotation of literally being pulled apart, of being pulled in different directions. The problem isn't that she's serving, it's that the way that she's doing it is disintegrating her. It is pulling her in different directions, so much so that her soul, that a part of her that cares about people, about the people in her home, it's not quite catching up to what she's doing. And so she's really irritable. Like you look at what she does in this story. Not only does she embarrass her sister, who we presume from other passages she's pretty close to, but she says in front of everybody, like, look at Mary, look at what she's doing. And then she goes over to Jesus, who is her guest, and ask him to intervene in a family dispute. Those are pretty intense and not okay actions. Her distractedness, her being pulled in different directions, is making her lose sense of priorities, of values, of what actually matters. It's not that Martha's the bad guy. It's just that by being in this state, her quality of relationships suffer, which ironically is the reason she's serving in the first place is to create a relationship, to forge a new one. You see, Martha's busyness, what she was doing, what the Lord kind of calls her out on, he says, you may missed out on the one thing needed for relationships to flourish. You are missing it, Martha. And actually, I felt better because I read today, that, or a couple days ago, that Martha, Martha is not chastising. It's usually used in incidents of pity and compassion, which made me feel better that Jesus isn't yelling at Martha. Okay? But it's Martha, Martha. So it's said in this way of, like, compassion. And he's saying, he's saying, look, you're missing out on the one thing needed. The one thing needed right now is for you to stop doing, to suspend that for the sake of connection. You need to be willing to stop what you're doing to foster relationship. And what Mary has done is she has prioritized relationship over the task. She has prioritized the connection over what needs to be done. And Jesus says, and that is the one thing that cannot be taken from her. These tasks, what you're doing, busying yourself with the things around you, yes, they're important, but they're temporary. What can't be taken from you is the connection you have with both your sister and with me. Doing 
busying our lives, filling it up with commitments and work and school and all the things. It's needed. It's not that it's not needed. It's needed. But so is relationship. And that requires being with, not doing for. If we have a choice of what is going to sustain us more, it is not the doing. It is the relationships that you have that you are willing to prioritize. That you are willing to say, I know that this is the most important thing in my life. And so I will make space for a late night frozen yogurt run, even though I'm really tired. I will make space to go fly to that best friend's home because her mom died and she's having a lot of trouble cleaning out that house. I will make space and make it a priority to go to that book club even though I'm super tired and the last thing I want to do is go. I will say no to work commitments and other demands on my life to make sure I make that men's breakfast at 7.30. That's true though, right? Like you want to know how connection is made? We're giving it to you on a platter. Yeah? But you have to prioritize it. We can do it. We can tell you like these are some places that you could potentially connect with people. But it's up to you to make the decisions whether you are going to make room for relationship or whether you're just going to go the pace of the world. It's fascinating to me and a little disturbing that Jesus called this out in first century AD. Like, right, that this was a problem then. Guess what we have now? It's scary, honestly. Because if that was an issue then, my Lord, is it a problem now? So to end our time, I want to give just three quick little things about how we can better prioritize relationships in our lives. So let's go over this really quickly. First, you have to choose one or two connections that are worth nourishing in your life right now. And I'm going to put some limits on them because we don't like to remember we have limits. So I'm going to put some limits. One, it can't be family. Family relationships, the statistics around them are kind of mixed, but in general, they're not super declining. In fact, what most people have done is foregone friends in order to just invest in their family. That's not going to work. That's going to be fine, but there's a lot of stuff. I don't know if you knew, there's a lot of stuff attached to your family. (laughs) Like caretaking and like all those other things that you have to do with family. Don't rely just solely on your family. It's not enough. You need peers. Not necessarily your same age, but you need people outside of your family. The other limitation that I'm going to place, they need, they need to be here in Dallas. I don't mean the Grove, in Dallas. And that's hard because most of us, including myself, made most of my friends in a different place, in a different state. Some of us are transplants here, most of us, in some way or another, right? And so we have friends. Those friends just live in Florida. And, like, sometimes we FaceTime them or we have our annual, like, trip that we do that we get to connect with them, and that's important. I'm not saying those aren't important. 
but we have to be honest with ourselves that being in person and being close matters. When you are going to the ER at 3 a.m., your friend in Florida cannot help you. And I don't want to be harsh. I just want you to know that that's the reality. Communities are made in proximity to each other. That is how it's been done for thousands of years, and it is not going to change. Find two connections, one or two, that are here, that are not your family, and that preferably aren't associated with another connection. Often friendships are started from, I don't know, being on, going to the same gym or going to the same, like, book club. They're made through a casual connection, just something that's, like, very loose. But you need to take that friendship out of that casual connection in order for it to build. You cannot rely on book club to form a friendship. You have to make priorities outside of that time. You cannot. You cannot rely on the kid's soccer schedule to build your friendships. Ugh, and I know I'm speaking to some people in this room, but you know what I mean. You can't. You need to prioritize it outside of that casual connection. And that's where that schedule check-ins. I think the biggest myth that we have fallen for in adults is that we believe that friendships happen organically. That happened when you were seven. It no longer happens now. It doesn't, guys. You're not going to magically make friends. Even by showing up in the same place over and over again, that helps because you get to know this casual level of friendship. But actual, meaningful connection does not happen without you starting it. And let me tell you what will happen. You will get rejected a lot. It just happens because people aren't used to, like, people reaching out to them. They're used to, like, being, like, they get really nervous. Like, am I going to be liked? And so sometimes they say no. And that's kind of sucks as an adult. You don't, you're like, I have built my life so I protected myself so I don't have to face rejection from social relationships. That's literally why I had a family. Like, I don't have to do this. Right? But it is worth the risk because let me tell you two other things. One, everybody wants connection. Everybody wants connection. Do not think that there are people sitting in here who feel like they have sufficient number of friends. They don't. The data shows it. Everybody wants a meaningful connection. And B, if, that is, if the rejection is taken, just serves as a like, alignment of like, okay, they're not quite in the place that I, they can be friends with me, and that's okay. Or you can do what I do and just keep inviting them over and over and over and over again, and eventually they'll cave. Yeah? You can do either, either option. But friendships do not happen organically. You have to schedule it. And then lastly, you have to say no to other people. I think this is where kind of the choice, the just how many choices we have in our life gets a little, it bites us a little bit. Because we think, we have this anxiety about if I invest in this, I'm saying no to this, and what if this was better, right? That, that's like our whole life. That's about toothpaste, and that's about friends too. But if we don't invest in one and really focus in it, or if we do, then we're going to have to say no to other people. And that is okay, friends, because guess what? You're a limited human being. You cannot sustain. Most people need, like, at max, like, three or four good friends. You can't sustain more than that. You're not meant to. Okay? 
saying no, it just has to happen. In this day and age, there's no way you can say yes to all the things. But it's also true that if you don't make those intentional no's, you're just going to say yes to the way your life goes. And then you'll end up somewhere that you didn't really expect. This age requires our intentionality. It requires us saying no, making choices, planning ahead. It requires that. Because there's too much coming at us to not. Okay. I'm going to end here. I'm going to wrap up with one little, little, little thing at the end. Because I would be remiss not to mention it. Okay, who are the two relationships that Martha has? Mary and then who else? Jesus. And I don't want to, like, make a plug for a relationship with God at the very end. I'm a little bit like, oh, should I do that? But I just, I think the story is not complete without it. Your relationships with people are closely related with your relationships with God. It is, like, in a lot of texts and a lot of reading, it's kind of the same thing. If you want to know what nourishes you in this life, what sustains you, it is relationships in general, and then if we break that down, it's relationships with friends and people you can share your life with, and then it is also your relationship with God. And that relationship requires just as much time, intentionality, as anything else. And I'm going to leave you with one quote. That is, it's like my favorite quote, and it bugged me for so, so long. But Martin Luther said this, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Doesn't that kill you a little bit? <laughs> Aren't you like, oh, but I really need a productivity hack to like not, to not do that. I don't have three hours. Most of us don't. And I'm not committing. I'm not saying that you need to do this. But I'm going to share just really personally a lesson I learned over the last month or so. Lent, so since Lent began. I started thinking of my day less about the task that I had to do and more about what do I need to prepare for this task. And not in terms of like actions, but in terms of my soul. What space do I need to leave so that I can enter into this conversation well? What space do I need to leave so that I can walk or go to the, on that trip and feel comfortable and less anxious. And so I started taking these like small breaks. For me, it's 10 minutes. It can be more or less for you. All I do is sit. And I, think, I guess you can call it meditating, but most of the time my mind is racing. But I do it, and I think about, what, God, what does my soul need? Nourish it and make it whole. And I cannot tell you how much it has changed my life. Make time. Make priorities. Live your life as it was intended to be lived. You do not have to be a victim to the pace that our life goes at. You can do things differently. But you will have to choose. And you will have to do the work of prioritizing and making room for the relationships in your life. Let me pray. Holy God, who is the perfect reflection of community, we are so thankful for your presence here with us, that you sustain us, that you nourish us, even when we don't see you, even when we don't feel you. Remind us that we need you. Remind us that we need each other. 
and move us forward to the ever-perfect reflection of the kingdom of heaven. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.